Hello, and welcome to a Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started a Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i Conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today. In this episode, we move away from a conceptual discussion and instead feature a narrative presentation about the Baha'i Faith. We hope to periodically release episodes in this vein. Today's episode was originally recorded as part of a celebration of what Baha'is call the Twin Holy Days. In the presentation, Michael focuses on the life stories of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, whom Baha'is consider the two messengers of God, or manifestations of God for today. Baha'is believe that a manifestation of God has a twofold nature. On the one hand, they have a divine nature, which we can never fully comprehend. Concerning this station, Baha'u'llah writes of the manifestations of God, quote, human tongue can never befittingly sing their praise, and human speech can never unfold their mystery. These tabernacles of holiness, these primal mirrors which reflect the light of unfading glory, are but expressions of him who is the invisible of the invisibles." Unquote. In this divine station, these figures are essentially one and the same. Today's presentation, however, will focus more on the second station, the human station. Viewed from this perspective, each manifestation has their own name, lives in their own time and place, and like any human, must eat, sleep, and all too often suffer. We hope you enjoyed the presentation. Feel free to continue the discussion by emailing us at a Baha'i Conversation, in one word, at gmail.com. But the goal here is really to present a little bit about the stories of these two figures. And in order to begin presenting those stories, I'd like us to take a step back and to imagine that we're living in the year 177 AD. So if I'm living at that time, um, let's suppose that I'm a citizen of the Roman Empire. Maybe I live in Italy or in Spain, and I speak mostly Latin, and all of my ancestors going back as far as I know all spoke Latin. And recently I've, I've met a group of followers of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus was a Jew who died almost 200 years earlier. And these people who I've met are trying to tell me something about the life of this Jesus. And they seem to imply that his story is not just of interest to Jews, but it's important to me as well. I know basically nothing about Christians. All I've heard is that Sometimes the Roman empires burn them or throw them to lions to entertain the crowds in Rome. That's about all I know. So then I hear the story of Christ. What am I to make of this story? Well, on the one hand, it sounds very strange. It's the tale of a poor carpenter who attracted some followers based mostly on their interest in Jewish prophecy. Uh, then this man got entangled in some internal debates about Jewish doctrine. Then he was handed over to the Romans by the Jewish priests to be executed. It's pretty strange stuff. I find it hard to relate to the story. And on the surface, it's not clear that it has anything to do with me. But there are some points about this life that are appealing 
and that I can't quite shake off. This was a man who seemed to be able to gain enormous influence. He was able to turn people into devoted followers, but he didn't use this power to amass wealth. He didn't use it to gain political power. He was a man who ran afoul of his enemies based solely on his words, not on his actions. But even though words can be taken back, this was a man who, when faced with death, refused to take those words back. So a man whose truth was more important to him than his life. And this was also a man who, underneath this strange, sort of culturally alien veneer of his life and teachings, said certain things that echo in my heart in a way that I can't shake. Uh, teachings about the brotherhood of humanity, um, about the primacy of love. I think if we think about that, that story, that, that context of what it would be like to hear the story of Christ at that time in that place, that might give us some sense of what it's like to hear about the lives of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, if we've never heard of them before and we live in the West today. So these are two figures who lived in a place, Iran, and in a time, the 19th century, removed from our place and time by a large gulf of cultural difference. Now, anyone telling the story of these two figures is inevitably, inevitably going to accentuate the things that resonate for them. Uh, I will do that as I tell these stories. And those things aren't necessarily going to be the things that will touch you. But beneath all that, beneath the idiosyncrasies of how each person might tell these stories in their own way, I believe that there are these same threads of light that we see in the story of Christ. These threads that, after more than 300 years, penetrated into the very heart of a European and then global civilization that had no historical connection to the Jewish context in which Christianity arose. These were universal threads. And these threads, which I see in the lives of Christ, the Bab, and Baha'u'llah, were at least three. First, there was this unparalleled power over the human heart, a power that created followers willing to die for love of these figures. Second, there was a selflessness and a disinterest in the things of this world and a refusal to, to use their really remarkable power to gain anything of value in this life, all the things that we sort of hold dear in our day-to-day -day lives, power, wealth. And finally, the third thread is the beauty of the teachings that they brought, teachings that fearlessly told every human being on earth that they have value, that they're created to know and to love God, and in so doing, become more like God, and that this purpose for human creation is manifested in this life by the way that we show love to every other human being that we meet. So with that as background, today I'm hoping to say a little bit about the lives of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, and while the telling will be flawed because it's one person's version of a story that's bigger than any of us, I do hope that a few of these threads will be discernible in, in, in what's presented and that you'll pick up these threads and see where they lead. So a full presentation of this topic could start with prophecies rooted in the older religions of humanity, prophecies about two figures who would appear to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. But in the interest of brevity, I'm only going to focus on the two lives of these figures. And in particular, I'll focus on their early lives. What I'd like to do is to give some feeble impression of what we might call the human side of the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So in their earthly lives, the Bab and Baha'u'llah had much in common, and they also had much that distinguished them. 
Both Fabab and Baha'u'llah were born in Persia, or what is today known as Iran. Both of these um, appellations by which we know them are titles. So the Bab is a title that means the gate when translated into English. His birth name was Syed Ali Muhammad. Now Syed is also a title. It indicates that Ali Muhammad was a lineal descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. So he was descended in an unbroken chain from the Prophet of Islam. Baha'u'llah means the glory of God, which is a title with important resonance with certain passages in the Bible, as well as with Islamic prophecies. Baha'u'llah's birth name was Mirza Hussein Ali. Mirza is yet another title. It was used in the olden days in Iran to denote a member of the nobility. Now, Hussein Ali was not descended from the Prophet Muhammad. Instead, his family traced its lineage back through the ancient pre-Islamic royal families of Persia to the great Persian prophet of antiquity, Zoroaster. There are very few practicing Zoroastrians remaining in the world today, but it would be hard to overstate Zoroaster's influence on religious and philosophical thought uh, in, in the history of, of, of the world, really. The Bob's family were all merchants, and uh, they were based in the city of Shiraz, which is in the south of Iran. And Shiraz is known for its beautiful gardens, its nightingales, and some of the greatest poets in Iranian history. Baha'u'llah, conversely, was the son of a high minister in the court of the Persian Shah, the king. He was born in the capital city, Tehran, not far from the shores of the Caspian Sea. And his family was so wealthy that they owned vast tracts of land uh, in the vicinity of the Caspian, uh, including entire villages. And while Baha'u'llah was not the oldest of his father's sons, as a young man, he quickly distinguished himself as the most intelligent and capable of them. And everyone at court expected him to pursue a distinguished political career that would ensure his wealth and his fame. Now, we celebrate the birthdays of the Bab and Baha'u'llah as a single holiday over two days. And the reason for that is that even though Baha'u'llah was born in 1817, and the Bab two years later, in 1819, their birthdays fall on consecutive days in the Islamic calendar that was used at the time. Thus, the Bab's birthday falls on the very day before Baha'u'llah's. So if we think about the different social stations that these two figures were born into, we can imagine that their childhoods must have been very different. So Baha'u'llah would have been taught to read and to write. Calligraphy was a very important art for the nobility, and his own father was a master calligrapher. Baha'u'llah would have learned to ride a horse with great skill, and he would have been taught Persian poetry and courtly manners. He would also have some rudimentary knowledge of the Quran, but the nobility, nobility were not expected to learn much about religion. In fact, the clergy, which were an entirely separate social class, were considered the sole authority in religious matters. Um, it would in fact be frowned upon for someone not of that class to start to make any kind of pronouncements that would suggest that they had knowledge of religion. This was strictly a matter for those with the rigorous and lengthy training required to become a distinguished clergy person. If we want to think of a parallel to the upbringing of another great religious teacher in history, when we think about the life of Baha'u'llah, the closest we can come is probably Siddhartha Gautama, the prince who would come to be known as the Buddha. The Bab's life was very different from an early age. He too would have been taught to read and write, but not in order to rule, but instead in order to manage accounts and to trade. Uh, some knowledge of the Quran uh, would have been imparted to him. Again, not much, since it wasn't going to be his business in life. And in terms of upbringing, 
Perhaps his closest parallel in the history of religious figures of the past would be his own ancestor, the Prophet Muhammad, who was also a merchant. Now, despite these different social classes and upbringings, there are strange commonalities in the early lives of these two men, according to those who knew them at this time. Uh, that would be their teachers, their friends, and their family members, who would later tell these stories to Baha'i Baha historians. So first of all, both of them seemed to know things without being taught them. For example, uh, so the Bob's fa uh, father died when he was very young, and his uncle took charge of raising him. When he was old enough, this uncle brought him to an elementary school where he could receive a few years of schooling before going to work full time at still quite a young age. Now, after only one day at this school, the teacher brought the Bob back home and told his uncle, I have nothing to teach this child. By the teacher's own account, the Bob had provided answers to all the teacher's questions that were richer and more profound than anything the teacher himself could have taught. Now, similarly, there's a story from Baha'u'llah's youth. So while he was not yet a grown man, and having never received a scholarly education, he went to sit one day in the class of a famous theologian. The students here had spent years studying nothing but religion. They'd studied the Quran, they'd studied the Hadith, which are the traditions and sayings associated with the life of the Prophet and his companions, and they'd studied Islamic jurisprudence, all the centuries of accumulated Islamic writings. Baha'u'llah's visit to this gathering ended with the theologian angrily berating his own students, asking them why they still knew so little, while this stranger, this, this Mirza, this nobleman's son who had no relevant education at all, gave answers to his questions that showed that he eclipsed them all in knowledge, like the sun compared to a candle. So these stories uh, can be found in the lives of both the Bab and Baha'u'llah from a very early age. And again, they are reminiscent of stories that we hear of Christ. Uh, debating with the learned when still a child. So, uh, a source of knowledge that seemed not to be earthly was something they had in common. Another commonality between the Bab and Baha'u'llah was their piety. The Bab would spend his free time not socializing with his merchant friends in the coffee houses, but wrapped in prayer on the roof of his house or in his private chamber. Neighbors and friends would report how moving it was just to be in his presence how the intensity, the sincerity, and selflessness of his prayers was so simple, but so powerful to witness. Baha'u'llah, similarly, always spoke in ways that showed a devotion and love for the prophets of old, which must have seemed a very strange obsession in the worldly noble class in which he moved. And a third commonality, and I think the most striking, was both men's way of being in the world. Now, here, we, we have to try to get a glimpse of the, the time and place in order to understand how unusual the early lives of these two men were. Persia at the time, it's a place that's probably impossible for us to fully understand, but um, from what we can tell, the whole society in that era was structured around institutionalized bribery. People tried to advance their stations in life, not because they wanted to serve their fellow human beings or, or even out of pride, but primarily because once you gained any kind of official position, then everyone underneath you who needed your services would be expected to bribe you in order to do your job. And there were names and sort of um, cultural codifications of this that rendered it perhaps less crass than it might seem to our, uh, in our mindset. But we can take the perspective, for instance, of outsiders like the English, uh, who were beginning to be active in a pseudo-colonial capacity in Iran in the 19th century. The English wrote at length and with great disgust about what they saw as this institutionalized bribery. 
Now, there's no shortage of things that we could look at in the 19th century British Empire and, and point out as sort of, well, frankly, great evils uh, that were wrought uh, in the name of imperialism. But it can fairly be said that the English at least liked to think of themselves as providing a model to other people because of the discipline of their officers in other places in the world. So a British officer was expected to act out of a sense of duty to their country and not primarily motivated by personal, personal financial gain. No doubt that was an ideal that was maybe seldom lived up to. But in finding the exact opposite attitude in Iran, they were quite shocked by it and, and, and called it out. Now in that climate, and raised amongst these values, and given a social position that would have made him perfectly placed to exploit the system for his own gain, Baha'u'llah spent his youth constantly giving away his wealth to the poor in his region of the country. He came to be known as the father of the poor, even before his own father had passed away. And once his father had passed away, Baha'u'llah inherited vast swathes of land, as well as a number of household servants who were legally owned by his father, effectively slaves. The very first piece of writing we have from Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah in his lifetime wrote somewhere in the order of six million words, an ocean of writing streamed from his pen. And the first words that we have in his writing constitute a letter written shortly after his father's death to one of his father's slaves. It's a letter written in the form of a prayer and Baha'u'llah writes that one servant of God cannot own another servant of God. And so this man is by his very nature and essence free. And all the other household servants were similarly freed by Baha'u'llah. A strange act this must have seen in his time and place for a man of his standing. The Bab, meanwhile, though obviously possessing far less wealth and status, also gained a reputation for generosity. One incident in particular must have struck his friends and acquaintances as almost insane. So on this occasion, he had been given some items by another merchant in trust, and he had been asked to sell them and to pass on the profits, taking a commission for his troubles. The Bob waited for a period, and then he sold the goods. Rather than take his commission though, he not only passed on all the money that he had obtained for the sale of the goods, but he also passed on a surplus to his friend. And he explained that while he had been waiting for the best time to sell the goods, the market price for them had risen and then fallen again. And the Bob had not sold them at their peak value. He stated, well, this wasn't your fault. And so the other merchant was entitled to the maximum possible price. This may seem like a small incident in our ears, but when the more we study the society and its values and, and, and what life was like in Iran at the time, we realized how contrary this was to the ways of his society. Uh, and it attracted notice, it was commented on, uh, and, and really um, drew attention to him long before he announced himself as a manifestation of God. So while these two young men were growing up in Persia, people in that country and throughout the world were searching. Christians in America, in England and in Germany, unaffiliated with each other, uh, came to believe that the, the time for the second coming was at hand. Muslims, and particularly the Shiite Muslims, who were and still are the majority in Persia, also believed that the Qayyim would soon arrive. This was the true descendant of Muhammad, who would return to the world to uproot injustice, punish the oppressors and the infidels, and inaugurate justice. In most tellings, at the point of a sword. Now, there was one group in Persia in particular, uh, a group of Islamic scholars called Shaykhis, 
whose teachers had given them specific signs to look for in this Chaim. And these teachers had told them that he was going to appear at any moment. Many of these shakis began to spread across the land. They were fasting, they were meditating, and they were praying to be guided to the promised Chaim. One of them found him on May the 23rd, 1844. This man was a mullah, or an Islamic scholar, named Hussein. He arrived in Shiraz, and he was unexpectedly greeted by a young merchant at the city gates, a man whom he had never met. This merchant invited him to his home and asked him what his mission was. And when Mullah Hussein explained that he was looking for the promised Qayyim, the merchant, who was none other than Ali Muhammad, affirmed that he had found him. As proof, he took up a pen and paper, and while chanting the verses in a melodious voice, he revealed unasked the first chapter of a commentary on the Quranic Surah of Joseph. This commentary, flowing out with unbroken speed and fluidity in beautiful Arabic, astounded Mullah Hussein for at least three reasons that we know of. First, the style in which it was written and spoken was unmistakable. It was not in the voice of a commentator giving his views and opinions on Holy Scripture. It was instead in that same commanding voice that the Quran speaks in, the voice of God revealing his word. Second, it contained explanations and elucidations on this famous surah of a kind utterly new, utterly beyond the conventional understandings of Islam that Mullah Hussein was so well versed in already. Now, as someone uh, myself who, is, who does not come from an Islamic background and who can't claim to be well versed in the intricacies of Islamic thought the way Mullah Hussein was, I've tried to think, how can I understand Mullah Hussein's astonishment? And this is the best I can come up with. So I've read that when Beethoven, the composer, began to really hit his stride, uh, let's say around the Fifth Symphony, um, which is the famous uh, dun, 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 sort of an iconic piece of music today, but at the time, audiences didn't know what to make of this new music. Until then, Beethoven had sort of been a continuation of the style of Mozart, um, um, who I believe he had actually studied with when he was younger. Uh, now there was a break. This new music was so different, so radical, so new that some people questioned whether it was music at all. Some of the audience would walk out of his performance, but others sat spellbound, listening with new ears, as though the music itself had remade them, given them new ears with which to listen to it. I think that whatever it was like to be in the audience when Beethoven unveiled this new music, if we, could, if we could have been there, maybe we would have the faintest glimpse of what Mullah Hussein heard in these challenging new words of the Bab. And there was a third thing, a third reason for Mullah Hussein's astonishment. And this was the impossible thing. Mullah Hussein was on this quest for the Qayyim because his own teacher, a man named Sayyid Kazen, had repeatedly told his students that the Qayyim was here in their midst and that once he himself died, they had to fan out and find him. Now, before Sayyid Qasim's death, Mullah Hussein had once asked this man, his teacher, whom, whom he revered and respected, can you please write me a commentary on the beloved Surah of Joseph? This Surah, or, or chapter in the Quran, is, is beloved. It's known as the best of stories. Um, it's, it's the retelling of the story of Joseph, as, as we may be familiar with from biblical context. And it's a story that stresses 
the unearthly beauty of Joseph. And so it, in some ways it, it, it reads almost like a love story. And Mullah Hussein loved this surah, as, as many Muslims do, and so he hoped that his teacher would write a commentary on it to reveal its secrets. But Sayyid Kazan had replied that a commentary like this was beyond his capacity. He was not able or worthy to expound its secrets. It would be left to the Qayyam. Only he could write such a commentary. And now, at this first meeting with the merchant Ali Muhammad, a man of no religious education to speak of, Ali Muhammad had unasked revealed this commentary, the exact things Sayyid Qazim had promised the Qayyam would do. So I'll tell the rest of the story more quickly. 17 other people found the Bab in the same way Mullah Hussein did, independently. Only then did the Bab permit them to start to spread throughout the land and teach people about him and his message. This new faith spread like wildfire. Religious scholars were divided. Some became his most ardent supporters, some his bitterest enemies. But even the fact that any religious scholars heeded him is quite remarkable in the history of religion. It may mark the first time that um, those uh, sort of part, who were part of the previous, the clerical order of a previous religion in any numbers became adherents early on of the new message. But it was the masses of his followers, the masses of Iran who became his, his followers, the common people. These were the disempowered and downtrodden of Iran who heard in the message of the Bab a promise of justice and an affirmation of their own nobility and worth that was so cruelly denied to them by the established social order. While these early followers were fanning out throughout the country, the Bab gave his first disciple, Mullah Hussein, a very specific mission. Go to Tehran and give a copy of the Bab's writings to the nobleman, Mirza Hussein Ali, the man who would later come to be known as Baha'u'llah. When Baha'u'llah received this message, he read only a few lines. And then in the presence of the messenger to whom Mullah Hussein had imparted the writings to give to him, Baha'u'llah proclaimed, that this was the same voice that had revealed the Quran. Without hesitation, he accepted the claim and station of the Bab and immediately became one of his most ardent supporters and advocates. The Bab and Baha'u'llah never met in person, but the writings of each testified to the mystical connection between them and to their great love for each other. The Bab gave himself the title of the gate on the very first night of his mission when he met Mullah Hussein. And this title embodies the nature of his mission and explains his relationship to Baha'u'llah. So the Bab explained that on the one hand, he was the gate through which humanity would pass into its collective maturity. As such, he had come to mark a break with the specific form which Islamic civilization had reached at that time, a rigid form that had, as all religions over time come to be, had come to be encrusted with man-made superstitions and prejudices. And at the same time, the Bab was the gate through which the supreme manifestation of God, the promised one of all ages, would soon arrive with a new message that would form the basis of a future world civilization. This promised one is referred to throughout the Bab's writings as he whom God will make manifest. This promised one is none other than Baha'u'llah, whose mission would begin after the Bab's own death. Once the Bab and Baha'u'llah arose to teach this new faith, both of their lives as they had known them were effectively over. We can begin with the story of the Bab, which from this point on is dramatic, powerful, and tragic. 
A detailed telling, including the heroism and suffering of his followers, would take too long to tell, but the basic story is this. The Shiite Muslim clergy realized that if the Bab's claims were taken seriously, their own authority would be over. It was the same danger that the Jewish Pharisees had seen in Jesus Christ 1800 years before. And so they wielded their influence on the one hand to pressure the government to eliminate the Bab, and on the other hand, to rile up the mob to attack the Bab's growing number of followers. We can begin with the, story of, with the tale of what happened to the Bab himself. He was sent from city to city in Iran in an attempt to stamp out his influence. And eventually he was imprisoned in two fortresses in the remote northwest of Persia. First, the fortress of Maku, which is uh, a castle at the base of a great cliff, and then to the even more remote fortress of Shirik, um, truly in a, in, a, in a, at the time, a very desolate and a remote part of the country. Today, it's either in or near uh, Azerbaijan. Everywhere he went, the people who were supposed to be his captors and guards came under his spell, and the number of his followers continued to swell. And so he had to be sent further and further and further, and it didn't work. No matter how far they went, no matter how hostile the population to which he was sent, he always attracted more followers. He always transformed hatred into love. And so eventually the clergy saw no other course of action but to convince the prime minister that the only way to deal with this threat to the established order was execution. And so in 1850, the Bab was martyred. He and one disciple who refused to leave his side were tied to a wall in the public square of the city of Tabriz. A firing squad of 750 guns took aim at the two men opened fire. The results of this event are a story uh, in itself, which we can leave for another day in the interest of time. But suffice it to say that um, eventually uh, the execution achieved its end and the two men were slain. Meanwhile, in the decade following the Bob's declaration in 1844, Scholars estimate that roughly 20,000 of his followers were executed in Iran. Some, like the Bab, were sentenced to death for heresy by the local clergy and executed in ones, in twos, in dozens. Others in cities like Neiris and Yazd were besieged by the hundreds and even thousands by their own fanatical neighbors who were whipped into a frenzy by the clergy and eventually supported by the imperial army sent to restore order. Here, the numbers of dead could reach the hundreds and the thousands. After a particularly savage set of persecutions across the country in 1852, all of the Bob's foremost disciples were dead. The only remaining leader of any note in the Babi community was none other than Baha'u'llah. He, at this time, was arrested and thrown into a prison in the capital city, Tehran, a prison known as the Black Pit. It was called the Black Pit because it was, it had previously been a water reservoir for a public bath. So we can imagine what kind of place it must have been. Entirely underground, no light came into this place except through the one door through which prisoners were brought in or brought out to be executed, a door that otherwise remained closed. The place was damp, it was cold, and it was indescribably filthy. And it was in this horrible place that Baha'u'llah bound with iron chains so heavy that they left scars on his body for the rest of his life 
began his mission. Now there's a moment here that we can't understand, but we are given a glimpse of in Baha'u'llah's writings. It's a moment that's echoed and mirrored in the lives of each of the manifestations of God. And that has always been explained to us in symbolic terms in the scriptures. The symbolism tries to convey an experience that as mere mortals, we can't possibly grasp. And so it's conveyed to us through imagery. For Zoroaster, the story we have is that a voice and a fire spoke to him. For Moses, it was the story of the burning bush. While walking on the mountain, he sees a bush engulfed in flames, but not consumed by them. And a voice from the bush says, remove your shoes, Moses, you are on holy ground. For the Buddha, we have the story of him achieving enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. For Christ, the story of a dove descending on him while he is baptized in the river Jordan. And for Muhammad, it is the voice of the angel Gabriel that speaks to him and tells him to recite. Baha'u'llah, in his turn, describes a figure which he calls the maid of heaven. And this is what he says. While engulfed in tribulations, I heard a most wondrous, a most sweet voice calling above my head. Turning my face, I beheld a maiden, the embodiment of the remembrance of the name of my Lord, suspended in the air before me. So rejoiced was she in her very soul that her countenance shone with the ornament of the good pleasure of God, and her cheeks glowed with the brightness of the all-merciful. Betwixt earth and heaven, she was raising a call which captivated the hearts and minds of men. She was imparting to both my inward and outer being tidings which rejoiced my soul and the souls of God's honored servants. Pointing with her finger unto my head, she addressed all who are in heaven and all who are on earth, saying, By God, this is the best beloved of the worlds, and yet ye comprehend not. This is the beauty of God amongst you and the power of his sovereignty within you, could you but understand. This is the mystery of God and his treasure the cause of God and his glory unto all who are in the kingdoms of revelation and of creation, if ye be of them that perceive. This is he whose presence is the ardent desire of the denizens of the realm of eternity and of them that dwell within the tabernacle of glory. And yet from his beauty do ye turn aside. Something that's always struck me um, and whose significance, and this is just my own speculation, it's interesting to look at the historical trajectory of those images as described. The message imparted to the manifestation of God in each age seems to have progressed. From Zoroaster, the vehicle of the message was an, an inanimate thing, fire, a sort of a thing that has the similitude of life. For Moses and for the Buddha, it was plant matter that conveyed the message, the burning bush, the Bodhi tree. For Christ, it was the animal, a dove. For Muhammad, a man, the angel Gabriel. For Baha'u'llah, a woman. Now, whether this indicates a hierarchy, I'm not sure, but there's replete references in the writings of Baha'u'llah and his son, Abdu'l-Baha, talking about how in this age, after really the whole history of humanity has been one of an imbalance between sort of the male and the female, where the male has asserted um, preeminence and, and, and taken power, um, that it's time for a, a correction to this and a balancing. And so now uh, the female has to uh, achieve its, its true equality and importance. And so I, I wonder if this is reflective of, of, of what we see in uh, the imagery of, of the maid of heaven.
But again, that's just my own speculation. So take it for, for what it's worth. So Baha'u'llah's mission begins. After three months in this black pit, Baha'u'llah was exiled out of Persia. His enemies decided that it wasn't um, suitable to kill him. And so he would be sent away so he couldn't trouble Iran anymore. First, Baha'u'llah was sent to Baghdad. He's exiled in the depths of winter across the mountains separating Iran and Iraq. Virtually no provisions and very ill-equipped. He eventually arrives in Baghdad. After a number of years there, he's further exiled, arriving in Istanbul. And then into Europe, these are now the European territories of the Ottoman Empire, a place called Edirne or Adrianople. And then his final place of exile was a penal colony in Palestine. It was a place called Akka, uh, modern-day Israel. This was a place where the worst criminals of the Ottoman Empire were sent to die. Akka is a coastal fortress, and there were only two ways in at the time. One was a sea gate, so you could um, uh, moor your boat at this gate and then enter that way. And the other was a gate in the land that was guarded and shut. And before I had been to Akka, I thought that Akka was a city that contained a fortress. And to some extent, that's true. There's a, a building, which is, has at various times been a prison and a barracks within the city of Akka. It was in this building that Baha'u'llah uh, stayed for two years upon his first arrival in the city. But when you see the old city, you realize that the truth is that the entire city was the prison. Nobody could come in or out except by those two, uh, those two gates. And everyone who came in and out was watched and noted. And if the wrong people tried to come in or the wrong people tried to come out, they were stopped. So this was a city designed to hold, hold people in captivity. And it was a foul place by all accounts. It was said, and I don't know if this was said in jest or if it was the truth, that at the time when Baha'u'llah arrived in the city, if a bird tried to fly over Akka, it would drop dead before it reached the other side because of the stench. So this was the place to which Baha'u'llah was finally sent. All told, it was for the entirety of the last 40 years of his life that Baha'u'llah was exiled from 1852 when he was imprisoned in the Siachal until 1892 when he passed away. And during this whole period, he wrote and he wrote and he wrote a torrent of writings in which he gradually revealed his own station as the one promised by the Bab and indeed by all the manifestations of the past. He wrote about the mysteries of the human soul. He wrote about the principles of a just social organization. He wrote about God, both unknowable and yet closer to us than our own selves. He wrote about the importance and sacredness of science. He wrote about the oneness and the organic unity of the human race, about the equal value and worthiness of men and women, of people of all races, of people of all religions. He wrote about the beauty of diversity and the great gift of humanity's differences. He wrote about the oneness of religion, the unity of the messengers of God, he wrote about a new kind of politics, a new kind of society, a new world, and the end of war. He wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote, as his enemies conspired to exile him, attempted to murder him, and defamed him. Baha'u'llah passed away in 1892, and his earthly remains are buried outside of Akka. The Bab's remains were brought at, inst at Baha'u'llah's instruction from Persia, and the Bab is today buried across the Bay of Akka, on Mount Carmel, which is a place prophesied, prophesied in the Bible. For Baha'is, these are the two holiest places on earth. 
So outside of this old city of Akka, there's a place called Bakshi, the final place where Baha'u'llah dwelt. Bakshi is a mansion. Beside it, there's a small building where Baha'u'llah's earthly remains are interred. The Baha'is so love Baha'u'llah and in his youth, Baha'u'llah spent his time in the countryside. As a nobleman, he would have every opportunity to take his horse and ride out in the countryside and see the beauties of nature, and he loved nature. He spoke so much about greenery and, and the joy of the countryside. He said that the city was the place of bodies, but the countryside was the abode of the soul. And yet for so long, he was deprived of greenery as he was exiled from hostile city to hostile city, from prison to prison. And so now around his resting place, the Baha'is have devoted time, energy, and, and their resources to building a beautiful garden uh, to provide Baha'u'llah what he was denied for so much of his life. And then across the Bay of Akka on Mount Carmel, a mausoleum has been built for the Bab. This is the shrine of the Bab. And it too was a labor of love of the Baha'is. Uh, and it too is surrounded by gardens. And during the daytime, the golden dome uh, reflects the sunlight and at night it's illuminated. And really it's, uh, it's been described as rivers of light pouring down Mount Carmel, uh, because not only is there the shrine in the midst of the mountain, but terraces have been built from the very summit of the mountain all the way down to the shrine and then beyond it down, uh, down all the way to the bottom of the, the mountain. So this uh, is another place of pilgrimage for Baha'is. Now, I thought that I might conclude um, with an artistic presentation. So I explained that uh, this was, presentation was uh, conceived for the twin holy days, the birthdays of the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And recently, uh, the twin holy days in the years 2017 and 2019 were of particular significance because those marked the 200th anniversaries of the births of Baha'u'llah and the Bab, respectively. And on those occasions, Baha'is throughout the world in different communities came together in their communities to create art artistic expressions of their love for these two figures. And they sent these uh, to um, the Baha'i World Center where they've been put online. And so if you go to, um, to the sort of official Baha'i website, baha'i.org, you can find, if you hunt around, you can find uh, a sort of a repository of these artistic expressions. And they're remarkable because they're all so different. They are embedded in the cultural traditions and ways of making art of each of these peoples from around the world, such different peoples, uh, Ireland, Australia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, USA, Spain, Bolivia, I'm just listing off sort of the first ones that come to, come to the eye, France, Kazakhstan, Sweden, Turkey. They're all so different. And yet they're animated by that same spirit, just this, this, this tribute of love to these, these two figures. And so I wanted to share one that when I first heard it was particularly moving. Um, I can't say why, I, I mean, artistic taste is to some extent pretty idiosyncratic. Uh, so this is just a rehearsal, it's not even the final presentation, but it's a rehearsal of a choir in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was recorded on the occasion of the birth of Baha'u'llah in 2017. At this point in the original presentation, Michael shared the choral piece he just mentioned. 
If you'd like to hear it, the exact web address will be included in the show notes to this episode. You can find artistic contributions from around the world for both bicentenary celebrations online at bicentenary.baha'i.org with no apostrophes. The, uh, the first time I gave this presentation, I was trying to work out on the fly why, why that one in particular had impacted me. And I think, I guess the two things that sort of popped in my head were, one, I, I find the harmonies beautiful. Um, there seems to be sort of a, uh, a kind of spontaneity that comes across, but also um, very polished in a way. Uh, and as someone who's been in choirs that have struggled to master songs <laughs> with much less complex harmonizations, I think I find that very impressive. But beyond that, I, I guess, I can't understand what they're saying, and yet I feel like I fully understand what they're saying. And that's, uh, I get that impression every time I listen to that. And that's very powerful and I think is reflective of what Baha'u'llah is trying to guide humanity to when he talks about the fact that unity and diversity are not anathema to each other. They find truth in each other. And the vision that Baha'u'llah and the Bab have held out, that humanity can overcome this moment when it seems that all we see is the division that comes from diversity and the fear that those different from us are going to take from us. And that if we don't fight for ourselves, then others will overcome us. He says that this is just the mirage and behind it, the truth is unity. And once we can understand that, and once we can learn to live that unity, then we'll see what our diversity is for. That is not a curse and it's not a, it's not a detriment. It's not something to be overcome. It's our glory and our beauty. But only once we see that unity. And I think it was to help us see that unity that Bob and Bahala were both willing to suffer so much in their lives.